guys, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Talk. We talk a lot, a lot of things. Sometimes they matter, sometimes they don't, but they're always entertaining. We're your hosts, Carol and Emily Rose, and today we have some very special guests who are going to be talking to us about health and their connection with their body and mind and faith. Hey guys, welcome back. Today we have two very special guests. We have Cersei and Gigi who came to talk to us today. Um, if you could give us a brief introduction as to who it is that you guys are, what you guys do, um, what you guys have been up to. All right, so I can kick it off. My name is Gigi Carter. I am a licensed nutritionist and also a certified personal trainer. Um, and I co-founded uh, Daniel Fast, A Bridge to Healthy Living. And I'm Cersei, and I'm a faith-based health coach. And I also co-founded the Daniel Fast, A Bridge to Healthy Living. And I help women connect their faith to their food. So tell us a bit about your journey. Like what got you started with health, with being a nutritionist and personal training all the way to um, founding Daniel, Daniel Fast? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'll kick it off. Um, <clears throat> so my health journey started back in 2007. Um, I was 35 years old at the time and I went in for a routine wellness exam and my physician told me um, that my cholesterol was elevated. And uh, he also did a what they call a carotid artery scan, which is basically an ultrasound of your neck. And what it does is it shows how much plaque you have building up in your arteries. And that's an indicator of whether or not you're at risk for a stroke or heart attack. And um, he told me that I had the arteries of a 46 year old, even though I was, as I mentioned, 35. And that was really a wake up call because he um, went on to um, request that I start taking a statin drug to lower my cholesterol. And um, so you can imagine I'm 35 and I'm being told I have to be put on this medication for what would be the rest of my life. Um, and I was just kind of taken aback. I was like, Hey, you know, that medication, you know, are, is really for people who are in their sixties and seventies, not in their thirties. That's crazy. And he said, well, um, your cholesterol is really high and you need to do something to lower it. Otherwise you're going to end up, you know, having a heart attack or stroke. And so I, um, listened to him, but I politely refused. I told him I knew I wasn't taking the best care of myself and um, that I was going to try another course of action besides, you know, getting on medication. And so uh, I walked out of the office and I remember calling my mom. <laughs> I was like, mom, oh my goodness. They told me I had these arteries of a 46 year old and that they wanted to put me on a statin drug. And um, I was just, you know, obviously kind of in shock by all of that news. And it was a wake up call for sure. And around the same time, I learned about the work of Dr. Dean Ornish, who is considered kind of the, the godfather of lifestyle medicine um, in the nutrition community, lifestyle medicine community. And he was really the first, he and his colleagues were the first to show through um, a scientific study that you could actually reverse heart disease without the use of medication just by changing your diet um, to a whole food plant-based diet and other lifestyle techniques. 
And I remember learning about this and I remember saying, there's no way I could live without, you know, you name it, cheese, fish, chicken, blah, blah, blah. And I just, you know, I was like, that's just so extreme to me. So I did what I thought was the next best thing, which was I looked at the guidelines, you know, that the government put out for a healthy diet. And um, keep in mind, I wasn't, I was never eating like fast food um, and not even a whole lot of ultra processed food. There was some ultra processed food, but it was my, my diet was predominantly, you know, meat and cheese and eggs and, um, you know, foods that might be considered whole foods, but they were not plant-based. Um, they were, uh, from, from animals. And, um, so I decided to go, you know, with the recommendation from the government, um, which was, you know, replace beef with poultry and fish and choose low fat dairy and those sorts of things. And when I did that, my cholesterol went from horrible to borderline bad, and it stayed at borderline bad for, for about five years. And um, I was in my late thirties when I started noticing that my energy level was really, really low. And I had a lot of trouble focusing. Um, so I basically had no mental clarity at the time. And um, a friend of mine talked me into doing this thing called the lemonade diet or the master cleanse, which is basically a concoction of lemon juice, cayenne pepper, maple syrup, and water, and you mix it together. And that's pretty much all you're supposed to consume over the course of 10 days. I lasted about five days. And, um, and so I transitioned off of that. And the transition diet protocol, I should say, is basically just vegetable broth with vegetables and fruits. And um, you, you, you consume that over the course of a few days before going back to your so-called healthy diet. And um, I did this cleanse a few times. And what I noticed was I never felt good doing the cleanse. I wasn't feeling good eating my normal diet, but I did notice that I felt good during the transition, you know, of just eating, you know, vegetables and fruits over the course of a few days. And so I came back from a very um, extravagant vacation. Um, we completely overdid it. And I came back and I said, I can't live like this anymore. I'm going to a vegetarian diet. And I'm still at the point where I couldn't live without cheese. That was kind of my last holdout. So I basically transitioned over the course of six months. I ate vegetarian twice a week, then three times a week, and then gradually increased that till I was, you know, full vegetarian June, 2012. So it took me about six months to transition. And then in July of 2012, I learned about, um, or I saw two documentaries back to back. And so I remember walking to my kitchen and my husband, um, my, I told my, my husband was sitting there and I said, honey, I'm going vegan and I'm going whole food, plant-based vegan specifically. And um, he said, okay, I'll do it with you. Um, to my surprise and delight, I said, okay, well, this is it. And that was the change. I mean, it was July, 2012. So we're coming up on 10 years. And what happened after that was, you know, I, I could never have imagined uh, what it, when, you know, when I did make the decision to change, I never could have imagined what would happen next. Um, first, my cholesterol went well within the healthy range. And um, my energy level just shot through the roof. 
I had so much energy. I started bike racing at the age of 42. I also um, gained this tremendous amount of mental and spiritual clarity. And um, it was through that that I decided to leave my corporate career that took me 22 years to build, to go back to school, get a master's in nutrition sciences, and um, dedicate the rest of my life to helping people take control of their health. Wow, that is a very, wow. (laughs) I don't even know where to start with it because it's such a like big journey that really started with just one doctor's visit. You know, just being like, I'm gonna have to take meds forever. That just started this huge journey for you. Wow, that's very, wow. Yeah, and I would say that the tipping point was me making the choice to change what was on the end of my fork. Because if you think about the doctor's visit, it was either I was going down a path of having to take medication for the rest of my life or become a statistic, you know, because heart disease is the number one killer um, of women and of Americans. And I was on the path to becoming another statistic. Um, whether it was either taking medications for the rest of my life or having that heart attack or potentially both. Right. And so the pivot was changing what was on the end of my fork. So who would have thought that changing your diet would change your life in such a drastic way. And, um, and, you know, the only regret I have really is not doing it sooner. And I love, before we go on to um, Cersei's story, I really love the expression on the end of my fork, changing what was on the end of my fork. I feel like it gives us so much more power in deciding like what it is that we eat and what it is that we put in our bodies, because usually we're just like, you know what, you know, I'm young, having fun, whatever, whatever, just eat. But it just puts so much control back into like, well, I can choose, I can make this choice. What I, you know, stick my fork into and eventually put in my mouth, this is all like the decision that I'm making. So yeah, I find that very interesting. So Cersei, if you could tell us um, about your journey and what got you into health and just changing your lifestyle for the better. Um, For me, it started um, in my last trimester of my second pregnancy. Um, I was actually diagnosed with high blood pressure. And so at the time I didn't really, I wasn't really alarmed by it because my mom had high blood pressure and so did my grandmother. So when they said you had it, I was kind of like, okay. Um, I didn't really realize the severity of it. Um, so what I know now that I didn't know then is that people who have high blood pressure um, during pregnancy, you have a higher risk of complication before, during, and after. And this is even higher for African-American women. And so when I actually did end up going into my delivery, I ended up having a complication. Um, And my son actually lost oxygen to his brain. They had to resuscitate him. Um, And so he was on this journey of having to um, be taken care of 24 hours a day because he wasn't able to um, drink on his own. He had a lot of complications. Um, So you could imagine um, just the the trauma of even that process as a mom, as a family. And so he ended up passing away on his little bit after his first birthday. Um, And so as a family, as myself personally, I think that was probably the darkest part of my life. I, you know, um, you know, you had the family and friends and you had your church and your faith and all of that, but there was still this 
deep grief um, and sadness and depression. And um, I think I weighed the heaviest I've ever weighed at that point because it, food became a source of comfort. Um, and so I probably was just at that rock bottom stage of my life, as you could imagine. And so just completely out of the blue, very random, a friend just came up to me and she said, hey, why don't we do the Daniel fast together? Now, I've done the Daniel fast before at church. For those of you who are not familiar, uh, Daniel fast basically is taken from um, an, the story of Daniel in the Bible. And it's pretty much where you dedicate a certain amount of days and you eat a whole food plant-based diet without any dairy, animal products, any kind of preservative processed food, sugars. So it's a very wholesome diet. And then you combine that with your prayers and your scriptures and your meditations and things like that. So she had asked me at that point in my life to go ahead and jump into it a Daniel fast. And to be honest, when I've done it before, I kind of tweaked it to my liking. I don't really think I've done it in its purest form. So I wasn't sure if I was ready to kind of extend myself like that. But then she said to me, listen, if you're going to do this fast with me, you're going to have to do it exactly how it's designed. And for some reason that just resonated with me and it just arrested me in the moment. And I said, okay, I'll do it exactly the way it was designed. And I was very focus in particular, for some reason that, that just what she said just made it even more determined for me to do that. And I did the Daniel fast to the T exactly the way it was designed. And what happened over the 30 days at that time, I thought it was a miracle. Now I understand um, it's, not, it's not necessarily a miracle, but what I, what happened over those days that my blood pressure regulated, I lost weight. I gained mental and spiritual clarity. I had so much energy it was as if this fog had been lifted from me. I was, I had the sadness and the depression. It seemed like it was lifted. It was just so many things that actually happened to me that I just couldn't believe this. I said, did God just open the heavens and just, you know, was this a miracle? Was I an anomaly? And so I went on this journey of trying to figure out what exactly happened to me. And I started to study the book of Daniel a little more deeply and realized that what Daniel was doing wasn't a 21 day fast, but it was a lifestyle that he was actually living from the time that he was a youth. And then I started to dig into the science. And I realized that, like Gigi, I found out that the number one cause of death was his heart disease. A plant-based diet is the only proven diet that is known to produce to prevent, manage, or, or um, cure heart disease. And not only heart disease, I started to realize it was diabetes and high blood pressure and cancer and a whole array of different chronic health issues and medical issues that a plant-based diet solved. And so I realized that, no, this wasn't, an, I wasn't an anomaly. This wasn't a one-time miracle, but what it was, it was science aligning with scripture and that eating a whole food plant-based diet and combining that with your faith could revolutionize your life in every single way when it comes to chronic health issues and mental and spiritual clarity. I was even able to hear God's voice more clear because now my body wasn't filled with all these things. And so I just went on a quest from there um, to teach women how to combine their food and their faith. I do find it very interesting how you both talked about mental and spiritual clarity through mm -hmm. changing the way you eat. And I do feel like that's very reflective even my experience, like when every time I would kind of, because I'll be honest, like I still am not necessarily um, 100% where I would wanna be in terms of like the way I eat and what I put in my body and how I take care of my body. But um, 
one the biggest things that I experienced when I really put in that work is the clarity Mm-hmm. Just how much easier life is to go through. Like when you, when you're, you're stressed, you know, let's say you're stressed at work and your eating habits reflect the fact that you're stressed. So now you don't eat as well because you're stressed, but now it stresses you out even more. And it just becomes a vicious cycle. And when you stop somewhere, either like you reduce the amount of work or you eat better, you treat yourself better, you treat your body better. You're going to see that the vicious, vicious cycle ends. And I do think that it's really interesting how it was just kind of like that cycle of like dealing with hardships and eating and your eating habits reflecting that. But then when you stop somewhere down the road, then it was just like things just kind of got better from there. And I really I really like that. I find that very interesting. Um, but what would you say was your biggest challenge in making that change? Like what was the thing that you feel really stopped you because you both expressed there was a point where you weren't a hundred percent committed to it. What do you feel got in the way of you making that commitment, making that jump? Yeah, I love that question. That's a great question because that's really at the heart of why someone changes or not changes, right? And I think there were um there were a couple things. I think the biggest thing was I had this limiting belief in my brain and it was, it was, it was kind of at a subconscious level. Cause I wasn't aware of it until after I made the change, but the limiting belief that I had was that if I gave up eating those foods, the meat, the cheese, the chicken and all that stuff, that the quality of my life would go down. Like that was kind of subconsciously why I was afraid to not eat meat, cheese, chicken, eggs, those things. And it sounds absurd that I was afraid to not eat them, but that's what it was. I was afraid to not eat them. And, um, and I think it stemmed when I, when I, when that realization came to me as to why that kept me um, you know, that I would say the biggest barrier kept me from adopting a whole food plant-based nutrition plan sooner was I think one of the reasons was I attributed success to eating well and well to me and my brain and my upbringing was eating those animal products. And, um, and so to, to not eat those things, was kind of a reflection of me not being successful. It sounds weird, but I think that's what it stemmed from. So, um, but what's so funny about that is once I stopped eating those things, the quality of my life increased exponentially. I mean, I mean, I can't even, it's hard to even articulate like how much better I felt just in terms of going about my day, in terms of um, having the energy to, you know, pursue a competitive, you know, cycling. I don't want to call it a career because I don't do it professionally. I'm an amateur, but just the fact that I, you know, train at a very high level that I go to races, travel to races and at the age of 50 and I, I race bicycles, um, with people who are, you know, half my age mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I would have never imagined that happening when I was first diagnosed with uh, with high cholesterol back in 2007. Yeah. And I think when I look back for me, I think, and a lot of times, just as Gigi says, these are not things that are on the forefront of your brain. I think a lot of times you're able to hash these things out in retrospect, but looking back, 
I think I had an idea that it didn't matter what I ate and that somehow what I ate had nothing to do with who I was or, or that God even cared what I ate to tell you the truth. I just felt like it was two separate um, places. And so for me, once I understood that what I ate actually affected how I live out my purpose and how I live out the gifts and the callings that God has given me personally, that changed my mindset completely. Because now I realize that, wait a minute, eating is a responsibility. Eating is a gift. Eating is um, something that I'm doing not only to honor myself, but to honor the God that is in me. And another thing, a point that I found interesting, um, Gigi was mentioning how like um, she finds herself doing things that she wouldn't expect herself to do at her age. And like you were saying, also, like we tell ourselves, like, I don't need to care about my health. And I feel like, especially as young people, we're just like, oh, you only live once, you know, trying to experience life and food plays a big role in that because it's like, I want to go out with friends. All my friends are eating this. I don't want to be the only person not drinking. I don't want to be the only person not doing this. And so kind of that fear of missing out always plays a role in us, like just wanting to do things to fit in. And like, I say this as someone who was pescatarian for about three years and how that presented a really big hardship. That was really hard in terms of like hanging out with friends and friends who want to go to certain places and they want to eat certain things and want to eat meat, but I don't do that. So I just feel like it's interesting how it all kind of fits into age and how like when we're younger, we just eat terribly, we eat shitty. And then when we're older and we see the effects of that, we tell ourselves that, oh, it's just age. It's because we're older. That's why things are like this. We never tell ourselves that maybe it might be something deeper. Like you turn I don't know how old you turn until your back starts hurting but people tell themselves that it's just a normal occurrence that everyone everyone's backs hurt and nobody can walk around and that's just like a normal thing to have your knees pop whenever you try to bend over but like you see in other places other people who will tell you like no that's not actually a normal thing and it's because we don't do anything to prevent those things that we end up having those things we end up experiencing those things. So I find that interesting how like you don't really let age limit you in making those choices and how also you made the choice long term because you grow up as a girl and diet culture is a thing. Diet culture is very prevalent and they always tell you, well, you know, the solution is you eat an egg three times a day and then boom, you're going to be the best you've ever been. You know, um, you eat, you know, a couple leaves of spinach and boom, that's going to be the key to, you know, having that great house and the husband and the dog and the living on the beach in the villa, whatever. Um, and it's so interesting how you, you guys decide to take a different approach, like that very, like the long term, like we're here for the, we're in it for the long haul, not just like trying to get that cute starved body for the summer for like three months. And then going back to destructive habits, even that's a destructive habit, but just kind of like countering diet culture and how that contributes to breaking, like really breaking those generational curses in terms of health. You know, like I grew up with a lot of like, oh, I hate my body. Oh my gosh, I had kids. My body's terrible. Oh my gosh, just hating yourself, constant diets, diets, diets. Um, so it's really interesting to see how you kind of like break those kind of generational curses by being like, well, no, we're going to make this change for the long haul. And this is going to be, we're going to do this with love. We're going to do this with faith. We're going to do this um, for ourselves for, so that we feel great. We don't have to shame ourselves or hate ourselves in the process. So I do find that very um, interesting. 
you know, I'll go ahead, Cersei. I know you're going to. No, go ahead. I'll do it. No, no. Yeah. What I was going to say is, you know, it, you know, and, and Gigi said this as well. The only regret I have is not doing it sooner. And so I say to myself, what kind of experience of a life would I had had I had started this from I was a youth? Because what we don't realize until you stop putting toxicity in your body, you don't realize that you're really not functioning on your highest frequency. And so where you're at, you think, oh yeah, this is great. But it's not until you really take all of the junk out of your body and then you start to really elevate that you're like, wow. And you're thinking, what kind of clarity, what, 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 what are the ideas of when I was younger, could I have thought of what kind of things could I have been doing had I started earlier? So I feel like this message is even for someone who's young and, and not necessarily waiting until something happens. And then now you're playing catch up. But I really think that to really get the most out of this lifestyle, it's really, truly a message for someone who's in their youth that they never have to experience, that they could go from, from one stage in life all the way to, and still live in a way that doesn't have to have chronic health issues and disease and weight gain and, and all of that. And you could just live your life to, to their fullest. That's what truly living life to the fullest is, but you have to give it a chance to know that even in your youth. Yeah. And I would love to add that. Um, and I've shared this with Cersei before, uh, before I changed my diet, my, my population of friends were specifically at work. Like I didn't have any friends outside of work. And what happened was that when I changed my diet, I still had those friends, but my friend circle expanded because I started cycling, because I was running half marathons, because, you know, I was out more than I was before because I had the energy to be out more. And also um, when I made the change, I sought out a community of people who were already doing it, you know, and that's kind of what, what Cersei and I do now is we have a community of people who are kind of either have already gone through it or in the process of transitioning um, their diet to a plant-based diet. And, and so my circle of friends like grew tremendously and my social life became pretty much from not being non-existent to being very robust. And um, I, you know, you hear people saying that, you know, oh, my friends, you know, when I try to change, you know, what I eat, they make fun of me, they do this, they do that. I have, and then I just say, you know, were they really your friends in the first place? I mean, if they, they can't support what you're doing, um, are they really your friends? And I'll say that for those who, stick around with you and most of them will I'm sure they're going to be curious you know they're going to get curious and you're going to inspire them to look at things a little bit differently so it's one of those things where it has this positive kind of cascading effect when you start eating healthy when you um, start going to restaurants and ordering off the menu um, you know things that fit within your nutrition plan, but aren't on the menu and they're healthier, then, you know, they're going to be more curious about, you know, what you're doing, why you're doing it, and maybe even give it a try themselves. Yeah, no, I think that the aspect of community is really important. Um, the whole notion of it, it can kind of often feel like you're doing things by yourself. 
um, especially if you're new and you can kind of feel like stranded and lost. And I think that like the health industry kind of has been created as this, this sort of like exclusive club thing that only certain people can have specific access to. So you only need to get organic food from these specific stores and you need to work out at this type of gym and wear these type of clothes and do this type of exercise to be considered healthy or fit. And that can deter a lot of people from entering, um, especially people who are, I feel older, because I feel like when you're younger, you know, it can be somewhat, like it's still difficult to make those lifestyle changes, especially because like, especially the food related one, um, because as everyone like mentioned, eating out is like a very vital point of college life. Um, most things are centered around food. Um, literally like we'll go to the library and we'll study until like four in the morning. And then what's the next step? Oh, people want to get McDonald's. We, oh, we do something. People want to get food after. So like, but I feel like maybe, and even physical activity is difficult because it's like, we're so sedentary. We're just like going to lectures, studying. And so it can be difficult to not even only find motivation, but to find time. But if like we've curated these spaces and these communities, like the work that you guys are doing to really like make spaces for not only people, but for black women um, to come and find community of a community of people who look like them and have similar goals as them that can really like motivate them to keep going in the lifestyle. Um, because I see a lot of people get deterred. Like it's really easy to like start and then finish or like start and like all of the yo-yo dieting and like hop on all of the trends. Like at the beginning you were talking about like the lemon water, and like I, when I was younger, like my mom would literally like print out these like diets. So there was like this one like soup, you know, it's like, oh, if you eat this soup, only this soup for seven days, then, you know, you'll lose X amount of pounds. And it's like difficult to stay consistent when you don't have, I guess, like present and proper direction and reminders I think that's why the work you guys are doing is really important. And like those things that have been said exactly. And you also find no joy um, in exercise because as you're talking about like finding, you know, bike riding, um, finding a community of people that you can really identify with outside of work, um, making friends that you share like actual commonalities with and like passions with outside of just like, oh, we study here. Oh, we both work here. You know, like finding a thing of exercise that's not just like oh I go to the gym for 30 minutes and I walk on a treadmill and then I go home but finding something that actually like that you actually love to do um, and that you're actually passionate by. I really like that point in term and I feel like that partially fits into what we define as success because I feel like when we look at success it's a very like external thing like oh, I have a big house. Oh, I have these things, like things that you can show people, like look at my job, look at my kids, look at this house. But like your health, you can't really show that to people. You know, like you can't really like, unless you do what, what's been done like on social media, like you find a way to make it cool and marketable and attractive. Like oftentimes in real life, it's not gonna be, you know, cool, marketable, attractive. It's just gonna be life, you know? And I feel like that. I feel like it makes it so that the definition of success, especially for like young people, doesn't necessarily include doing that unless it's like 
cute aesthetic day in the life your body looks the type of way and your food is cute on your plate like otherwise it's just not really something that people are engaged in yeah that's that's true and I think when you're you're talking to the younger generation um we're in such they're in such a diet culture I mean we all are in all age spectrums but I mean even the youth but when you start looking at even the fact of just eating real whole plant foods, not having to diet, not having to count calories, you actually get out of the rat race and you actually lose weight and maintain your weight. And a lot of times the youth may not even realize that, that that is the best diet to eat if you want to maintain your weight and keep your figure and, and wear all those stuff on Instagram. The plant-based diet whole food plant-based diet is the diet that actually helps to achieve those goals because when you're eating real food you don't have to count calories you don't have to um you know do all the things that you have to do when you're doing certain other diets you actually just eat real food nourish your body and it's really as simple as that so it's, it's less complicated i think it's just educating people on exactly what it actually does to your body yeah and i'll just add that um you know it's you mentioned earlier that you noticed a difference in your mental clarity. And, you know, when I think about if I had that mental clarity when I was in college, how much better I would have done, how, um, you know, I, I perhaps could have, you know, pursued, you know, other uh, graduate degrees. I mean, I do have an MBA and, and a master's in nutrition, but, you know, did I have the mental horsepower to go on and get a PhD or something like that? I don't know. But I know that when I was in college, I, I didn't have mental clarity. I mean, I was eating the college diet, you know, pizza and chicken wings and all of that. And, um, you know, I can remember going to class feeling tired. Yes, I was studying hard, but you know, the reality is like you, I wasn't very active. I was sedentary because I'm sitting there and studying and reading and everything. And, um, you know, and I had gained weight, you know, I, I put on those uh, freshman 15 or whatever you call it. <laughs> and, um, but had I done something sooner, you know, kind of like Cersei, who would have known, you know, I mean, I started cycling at 42. Could I have had a PhD and been a competitive bike racer. I don't know, but I know that um, I wish I was a little more dialed into my health um, when I was in my twenties, because the reality is, is the things you do to your body today um, for bad or for good will surface somehow later on when you get to be, you know, in your thirties and forties. Um, that was evident by my diagnosis at 35. Um, and, uh, and I'm not alone. I'm not, you know, my situation is not unique in terms of getting that kind of diagnosis. I mean, you just look at something like type two diabetes, it used to be called adult onset diabetes, but because, you know, children were getting type two diabetes, um, teenagers, you know, people in college were getting type two diabetes. They got rid of the adult onset and just called it type two diabetes. So um, that's the reality of the situation we're in today. And we've been in this situation for some years. Yeah, it's, it's true. Go ahead. <laughs> I feel like um, another a big thing for uni students, foods are so much cheaper when they're unhealthy. <laughs> you know, unhealthy food is so cheap. 
you know, and the unhealthy quick food is also very, very cheap. You know, when you're short on time, you're trying to finish all those assignments. It's so much easier to just be like, you know what, I'm going to get these chicken nuggets. I'll just throw in the oven, air fryer, whatever, 20 minutes. And then we're done with it versus just like having to make, having to make, you know, steps to like, oh, I'm going to cook for an hour three times a day. Like a lot of people don't have time for that. So what would you say are maybe like, what would you recommend for students, for university students who are trying to, who are short on time, but also want to make those good health choices also like aren't necessarily extremely rich, you know, trying to make all those choices in terms of like balancing money, time, but also eating well. Yeah, I I would say um, one of the things that I find to be super helpful, and I did it when I um, changed, moved to a plant-based diet, was I would cook with other people, you know, and so we would basically come together and cook um, and rice and beans and veggies are not expensive. Not if you buy them prepared and everything, yes, they're going to be expensive. But if you buy dried beans, you know, you buy rice and you buy vegetables and you prepare them yourself, it's actually a lot less expensive. And, um, and I would just make it a social thing. You know, if you could get, you know, a couple, two, three other, four other people to come together and do like a meal prep session on a Saturday or Sunday, you know, whatever day works best with your schedule and, um, and basically meal prep for that week so that a lot of the food that you're eating throughout the week is healthy. Um, that would be, you know, a great way to go in terms of lowering the cost. Yeah. So I would say that the university going to the university, whoever's in charge of food service at the university, going to them and, requesting that they make healthy food affordable um, is another route to go and hold them accountable to it. You know, don't settle for that sorry, you know, saucer of iceberg lettuce with the mushy tomato on it. Have them, you know, hold them accountable to making it, making it right so that people will want to buy it and enjoy it. Um, And there's other institutions that have done that already. but, you know, it, like, for example, Marriott, their uh, food service has, you know, within their recipe repertoire, well over 200 plant-based recipes that are healthy, that have been kitchen tested and approved for um, institutional use. So, you know, work with your school and the food service program to have them provide healthy, affordable food. Yeah. And I would just say, too, that, the, you know, Fruit is a fast food. Um, a lot of times we kind of overlook that when we think of fast food, we're thinking, oh, I could drive and get five nuggets put in the oven and do all this thing. But the truth of the matter is fruit is the fastest food you can get. You could have a bag of apples, bananas, um, just an array of fruit that you could put in your, your dorm room or your, you know, wherever you're living and have easy access. So when you're in the middle of the day and you, know, you need that snack or you're packing, you could just pack fruit. Um, and, and kind of munch on fruit as opposed to chips or things like that. You know, the, the grocery stores have made things a little much more convenient. You can buy salads in the bag now. So you can grab a whole bunch of those where you don't even have to do the chopping. They do the chopping for you. So that saves time there, you know. Um, and so it, it's really about, you know, looking at your grocery store differently now. 
You know, like, whereas you're, you're moving more towards packaged food as being fast, you look at fresh food as being even more fast because they don't even require any cooking. And so that's one of the ways that you can incorporate fruits and vegetables, just carrot sticks and apples and oranges and eat those things throughout the day as your fillers rather than the chips, the cooking nuts. Nuts is another one. You know, they're, they're right off the shelf. They're easy. They're sustainable, you're young, you know, if, if weight loss is not your thing, you could probably eat a little more than somebody else. But that's also a food that you can, um, you can grab that's easy access as well. Yeah, definitely. Like as someone who just buys canned food and just eats that whenever I'm bored, I definitely relate to that. Um, and Emily, I know Emily eats a lot of oranges. <laughs> Listen, I could literally finish a pack of like oranges, mandarins, whatever in a day. It's left in my own devices. Like it's so bad. Like back home, my mom, like we always had like this big fruit bowl in the living room and I have two brothers and fruit literally just go, cause it's so easy to just like pick up and eat. So like bananas would be literally gone within like a day any type of like oranges, pears, grapes, fruits, like fruits that you can literally just like grab and like eat. It's, I love fruit, fruit, and it's so good and it's sweet. Fruit is a top tier food. It, when we talk about the way, like the foods we eat, I feel like another big thing or just another, like another obstacle that kind of presented itself for me when I wanted to change up the way I ate was my culture and what we eat. Um, so like there's the foods I eat, there's a lot of like oils, there's a lot of meats with very few substitutes. There's a lot of like, a lot of those things that you try to avoid kind of leave you a bit ostracized from what your family cooks, what you guys eat when you're together and just having that sort of experience. And I just want to know like, how has that ever presented itself, um, in your lives? And if so, like kind of how you dealt with it. Yeah, for sure. Culture is so, so important because, you know, food, it's everything. So what I found for myself is there's two aspects. One, social media is so vast that regardless of what culture you are, if you put plant-based, Ghana plant-based, you're going to get every single, there, there's so much so, um, influencers out there that are doing the thing. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's number one. And then number two, it's the more you get into it. I know for myself, you know, um, the national, my, my background, my family's from Jamaica. So for example, you kind of have to look at your ingredients and say, well, how can I switch this over? The national dish is ackee and saltfish. So I grew up eating, that was like my favorite dish. So we would have the saltfish in there. But then now that I'm doing plant-based, I said, well, I could take the saltfish out. I could add a little more veggies bam, I have the same thing. Or, you know, you start to find ways how you can substitute, you know, a meat with a bean or with a, a tofu or with a tempeh, or you, you start to learn um, and to kind of recreate the same recipes that you had with the exact same flavors. Because the truth of the matter is when it comes to Caribbean cuisine, I'm talking for my culture, we have the jerk seasoning, we have the pimentos, we, there's certain spices, the hot peppers that we use, that I'm just taking the very same seasonings, which is what is the heart of the culture to begin with, and transferring the same flavors over to the plant base. So I don't feel like I'm culturally missing anything. Because in all cultures, the real deal is not so much the meat, it's the seasonings on the meat. And if you can take the seasonings with you wherever you go, which the seasonings are plant-based, thank goodness, right? You, you're, it's a win-win. 
Yeah, and I'll just add, so my background, I'm, I'm Swedish American and African American, so mixed race. And so I grew up eating a, a variety of different things around the holidays. And, um, you know, for example, you know, we typically had a, a soul food type dinner, you know, collard greens, mac and cheese, all of that. And I would just say that, you know, it, you just, you modify the ingredients to make them healthy. Um, so instead of, you know, cooking your collard greens for like four hours with a, you know, with a ham hock or something like that and a ton of salt and, and, and cooking it to the point where it's just brown and mushy, um, you just don't put the animal, um, the, the, the ham hock in there, the smoked meat. And instead you just use, you know, onion, garlic, and you could use something like smoked paprika or, um, a splash of liquid smoke if you want that smoky flavor. And so you just modify how you make it. And really what you're left with is one of the most nutrient dense meals or dishes that you could ever eat, which is collard greens. Collard greens is like top of the top in, in terms of nutritional excellence um, and what it can, what it does to your body in terms of, you know, stopping free radicals and being anti-inflammatory and all that good stuff. So, um, you know, you could take a, a dish that you grew up, you know, eating and then modifying it to make it healthy. Yeah, no, I think that a lot of cultural foods um, are actually quite healthy. I just think that we've been like a bit brainwashed into this narrow idea of what healthy foods actually are. Like healthy food goes beyond like a salad and like an acai bowl, which aren't actually always that healthy, but we've kind of been con like conditioned to think that Western food is like the healthy food when in reality, like a lot of Cameroonian dishes are like extremely healthy um, in terms of, cause like they ma they're made from like scratch, you know, they're made from straight ingredients. Like, you know, everything that's in it. Granted, sometimes there could be a bit of oil that much but for the most part it's like vegetables it's essence essential nutrients for your body um, and so I feel like we need to be more open to what we consider healthy um, and not just automatically reject um, our own cultural foods as you guys were saying but more so try to find ways to tweak them um, and I kind of wanted to ask you guys about like the recent, I guess, because um, it seems that like veganism, vegetarianism, and like the whole like healthy lifestyle trend is like picking up um, a bit more steam. It's getting more popular, um, and with that has come kind of the attempt of um, fast food brands, you know, to kind of hop on that. So now, um, a lot of fast food places have uh, plant based options, meat, uh, meatless meats. Um, even in grocery stores, you know, you can find plant-based burgers, bean-based burgers, um, and kind of just attempts to, you know, substitute meat. So I guess, like, what are your thoughts on, like, eating, I guess, fake meat? Yeah, Cersei, do you want me to start? And then, okay. All right. So um, I would say that plant-based meats and, and also just the fact that there are more plant-based options that, you know, restaurant chains and fast food restaurants, I think it's coming from a couple different angles. I think it's coming from the environmental impact of animal agriculture, 
um, being so intensive and destructive to our planet. Um, that's one kind of pressure point. Um, the other would be just the whole animal rights movement and um, people kind of waking up to the fact that, you know, these factory farms and concentrated feeding operations um, are horrific um, and damaging the environment in terms of, you know, the community, especially the black and brown community. Um, and then I would say that health is kind of maybe in third place with that. Um, and I say that because when you look at the, the fake meat options, they're not necessarily healthy um, for your body. They're healthy for the planet. They're obviously good for animals, but they're not necessarily healthy for your body at a cellular tissue level. Um, what's far superior is just eating whole plant foods in or close to their most natural state. And, um, but the reality is there's no money to be made in you eating that. So there's money to be made in creating, you know, these products that yes, they're great for the planet. And that's obviously hugely important in animals, but they're not necessarily going to reverse your chronic disease. They're not necessarily going to help you to lose weight, you know, um, in general. And so I would say that, um, while I like the fact that they're doing some good to society as a whole, um, I don't necessarily view them as a as a healthy option. Yeah, I agree the same way as well. Um, and I think for someone who is on a health journey, if if you're saying to yourself, you know what, I want to lose the weight, I want to prevent chronic illness, it those foods, I feel like it can be a transition food. For some people, they cannot wrap their minds around not eating meat in the same way they ate it before. And so for someone introducing them to, you know, an impossible burger, it's like, oh, wow, this tastes like meat. Then it kind of takes the, the um, it kind of takes down a little bit of the, the fear around it. So you're like, wow, plant-based could be great. But I see that more as a transitional food that ultimately you, you shouldn't get stuck there in that in-between mode, but you should grow in the sense of saying, okay, I, I needed this to kind of give me that, that bridge, so to speak, but I need my ultimate goal is to eat real food. Um, and I think as young people being able to know the distinction, I think because veganism is so popular now, plant-based is so popular, the words get so interchangeable that somebody will think, hey, I'm eating vegan, so I'm healthy and I'm eating fries and Oreo cookies and ice cream, but because it's vegan, I have like some kind of health credential or I've, I've gotten some kind of health badge. And it's about educating people that like Gigi said, there is a difference. Vegan just means what you're not eating. So you're not eating animal products, but it doesn't really tell you what you are eating and if you're eating something that's actually healthy. And so so being able to make that distinction that just because I'm going vegan means I'm automatically going to be healthy. No, you still have to make a conscious choice, even as a vegan, to say, I'm not eating any animal products, but I still have to take that next step and say, I'm consciously deciding to decide what I'm going to eat that is plant-based that is actually most food that is in its most natural state. So there's still choice, even becoming a vegan, you just can't get caught up in the movement. You've got to look at it in all areas and benefit from everything, from the environment, for your body. We don't need to pick one. And I think a lot of times young people, I think this is probably more where you feel, well, I got to get stuck on the animal rights or I got to get stuck on the, the, the environment. You really could benefit from a whole food plant-based diet and, and, and check all three off, right? The health, the animals and your, your body, right? So why not get all three? 
Yeah. And the social justice piece too, I think would be a fourth one. So, you know, what you eat, you know, in, in terms of eating whole food plant-based from a social justice standpoint is, is also another kind of reason. So I, I maybe add that as a fourth box to check off. Yeah, I do definitely. Oh, sorry. But I do definitely relate with the whole um, idea of feeling like you have to check a box. Like, cause when I um, decided to stop eating meat for a bit, it was a lot of like, feeling like the move was really political. Like, oh, what are you doing here? You know, I had to have like a reason and I couldn't just say like, oh, it's for the animals. I had to give like, I really had to defend myself. Like I really had to know like, oh yeah, this is what's happening. That's what's happening. No, 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 Like I felt like it was a lot of justifying where it's like, no, like I just want to make this choice. And I feel like there's a lot of, because nobody goes and grills people who eat meat. Why are you eating meat? No, 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 Give me paragraphs, give me dissertation. No, it's just like you eat meat because that's what you want to do. You know, but I feel like with veganism, even when like parents decide to be vegan with their children, it's like, oh, you're forcing your kid to be vegan. Well, you're forcing your kid to eat meat. So I feel like there's just a lot of like, a lot of like defending when it comes to veganism. I feel like the conversation is always like really extensive because there's also like a lot of cultural aspects, like indigenous people and the way they hunt and and use their what they hunt sustainably. And I feel like there's so much conversation, like how different countries, non-Western countries, even um, like when I went to Cameroon, the meat tastes different, you know, like it is not that we are not talking about the same thing, you know, like um, the way, like, cause I was still pescatarian at the time and it was just fish, just the fish, completely different story. So I feel like all those kind of play a part in the conversation we have about veganism. Yeah, no, like what you were saying about like needing to have a reason. I remember when I was pescatarian and cause my mom would tell people that, and then like adults would come and be like, why? And the thing is, I didn't actually have a reason. I think it was like, cause it was just like a random day and I was like, you know what? let me just not eat meat. You know, I just do that sometimes. I just do like, let's see how long this goes for. Um, and people were always looking for like a very specific, like, do you, is it because you care about animals? Okay. Is it because, and it's like, why do we need to like, why is it so abnormal, I guess, to not eat meat? And I guess it's becoming a bit like more and more normalized, but even in black communities, cause I have a friend um, he is vegan and he's a basketball player at our university. And so being an athlete and being a vegan, he gets so many questions all the time about like, oh, like, how are you vegan? Whatever. And even when I first met him, I was like taken aback because he's African as well. And I was like, wait. But then I had to question myself about like, why am I taken aback that someone can be athletic and be vegan and be like, these things are not contradictions. Like we need to stop seeing, I guess, having an idea of what it means to be vegan. Um, because as Karel said, really and truly, no one asks people why they eat meat. Same thing about like alcohol. No one asks people why they drink. But if you don't drink, because there's a period of time where I did, and then everyone is going to be like, oh, are you drinking? Why are you not drinking? Why are you? And it's like, why does it matter? Like, it's not a thing of like peer pressure, but people are genuinely like curious, you know, they really want to like get into it, but it's like people never question the norm. Um, they only question the people outside of it. And I feel like, especially in context of like what goes into your body, it's not really like necessary. Um, but I wanted to touch on the point that Gigi made about like how social justice um, and the food is connected. 
Um, I would like if you could expand on that because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I'll comment. I'll let Cersei chime in too because she has a really good perspective on this as well. Um, I'll just I'll just give one just in terms of you know where concentrated feeding operations are geographically located. And the fact is, is that when you look at, you know, these, and that's what they are, they're factory farms where they have a lot of animals crammed into a small building um, for the sole purpose of providing, you know, the meat, um, the bacon, the pork chops and all the parts that get sold to fast food restaurants and grocery stores. They're concentrated in these very small buildings and, um, and the waste that gets produced from those buildings then kind of creates an environmental problem for the people who live around it, like miles around it. And so it's a, it becomes a social justice issue because of where they're located, which is in predominantly in black and brown neighborhoods. And so the environmental damage that that causes, you know, in terms of air quality, um, in terms of the soil, in terms of the water supply, um, you know, is is what makes it a social justice issue. That's that's one example. Yeah, and I think you know when you look at the statistics now, um, the African American community is the fastest growing community when it comes to going vegan. So that that's telling in of itself because I think a lot of Black people are now realizing that there is. Um, there is a social justice revolt that you can take by changing what you eat in the end of your fork as well. Like that's an act of resistance. I know you guys talk a lot about the norms, but when you look at certain inner urban communities that don't have access to grocery stores, you know, that you would think that that's just a, a common place when you're going to suburbia and other areas, they have, you know, access to grocery stores everywhere. So the idea of getting fresh food is so readily available. And then you go into other communities of black and brown communities and you're seeing dollar stores and dialysis centers and, um, you know, liquor stores and things that don't promote health, that you're not able to get fresh foods. And so that's a systemic um you know, situation. And so one of the ways of fighting back is advocating for for grocery stores, advocating for gardens in those communities, advocating to even reject the, um, the, the foods that are literally making the Black community more sick than any other community. And so what happens is we end up in this cycle of eating the poor food, then we get sick and we get into the healthcare system that we already have health disparities even within the health system. So now we're gonna get less care. And so it's this, it's this crazy cycle. And one way I think people are coming to realize that I can break this cycle is changing the way I eat. So now I, I change what's on the end of my fork. I develop a whole food plant-based diet. I eat more healthy. So what happens now? I don't, I don't develop a chronic health issue. So that breaks one cycle there. Then I don't end up in the hospital. So I'm in this disparity of treatment. So I get a worse outcome than someone else. And then I'm actually able to live longer. I'm able to live longer. So what happens there? I'm able to financially build wealth for our community because I'm living longer and stronger and at a higher elevated level. And so there's so many dynamics that sometimes we we have we can also see of what we eat as a social resistance as the black community um and so that could be another reason why blacks are growing at the rate that they are as well 
I think that that's so interesting um, what you said about using food as like a means of revolt. I think that that's really powerful and really important um, because I was thinking, I was talking to my friend the other day about like the, when we're younger, we learn about like the food pyramid um, and like how much of like each food group you're supposed to consume. And apparently that's not right. Like apparently the food group, uh, the, those food groups and like the quantities, the government quantities that we're supposed to eat a day aren't right. The most of the food that we get in grocery stores um, is like processed uh, and fused with chemicals that we don't know, don't understand. Um, and I think that, as you said, like using food as a means to revolt and to kind of go against um, the system that is trying to get us sick and kind of keep us on like this loop, this cycle, kind of going back to Karen, um, what was she was saying at the beginning, like in America, the norm is that kind of just like as you get older, you're just, your quality of life just starts decreasing and that's that. But it's like, we know that that's not necessarily true because in other places around the world, that doesn't happen. You know, like it's only, well, it happened to a certain extent, of course, like when you get older, like things change, but it's like your health, health should not be deteriorating for this large amount of people at the rate that it's deteriorating as it is in North America. Um, and so food has like a big part of that and kind of like, I guess, using food as a mechanism for activism, um, I think is really, really like important. Yeah, I just want to add, you mentioned the pyramid and there's a my plate, which kind of replaced the food pyramid. The USDA came up with that, right? And so they did that in collaboration with other governmental and non-governmental organizations. But if you look at the strategic objectives of the USDA, one of them is to promote the economic interests of farmers. And so while when you look at the studies and there are countless studies around, you know, eating, you know, for example, eight to 10 servings of vegetables and fruits a day, the USDA doesn't necessarily promote that. They say five servings a day. And, but the science shows that eating more like upwards, like I said, nine, 10, eight, nine, 10 servings a day. And I personally eat a good 10 servings a day of vegetables and fruit as a, as a licensed nutritionist and competitive athlete. And the reality is, is that the USDA's interests aren't necessarily fully aligned up with your personal health. There's that economic interest that they have in terms of um, the other sectors in the agriculture, the other um, parts of the uh, agricultural industry that include things like dairy farms and, you know, the beef industry and so forth. Yeah, because why are we told to drink milk instead of water? I know. Why was I drinking milk with my rice and beans instead of just water? Right. And, and when 80, 90% of the population is lactose intolerant, it makes no sense. It, it, it's there because it's to promote an industry and they have to sell, they have to sell milk, you know, because they have farmers who have cows that produce milk and they have to make money. Yeah, like the whole thing of like milk makes your bones stronger. I never fed into that. Even as a child, I, cause I was never someone who liked, like, I don't like the taste of milk. Like, even now, I just don't have milk in my fridge. Like, I just never have milk. I only had it as a kid because it's like, it was in my fridge and my mom would be like, you should drink milk. It'll make you grow taller. 
I didn't drink milk as a kid. I'm five eight. I'm fine. Like I don't the whole like I don't know. Whenever you just start learning more and more and more, you kind of realize how deep the I don't want to call it a conspiracy, but for lack of a better word, I'm gonna say conspiracy. How like kind of deep the conspiracy of the American industrial food complex actually grows. Like they were tricking kids, like with the whole like milk mustache commercials, mm-hmm. you know, like trying to finesse that, even like chocolate milk and trying to make it more like appealing to children, even associating because milk now in my head is just automatically associated with breakfast because of cereal, you know. And so you start your day off with a big bowl of milk, you know. And so I don't know. everything kind of just like tunnels into each other and kind of just yeah there's definitely a lot of propaganda around that um and I can remember growing up and you know there were periods when we didn't have a lot of money and so we got government cheese and government butter all from the dairy industry and in recent years I think it was 2018 um you can google it but there was a a surplus of, of dairy and what they did was they made it into cheese and then they gave it to, you know, basically, you know, homeless shelters and food banks. Um, and so on one hand, you're sitting there thinking, oh, wow, that was really nice of them, you know, to give taxpayer funded government cheese. But then on the other hand, as a nutritionist and knowing, you know, what these products do to our health and our body. Um, and, you know, these cheeses are going to not just be high in saturated fat and cheese is the number one source of saturated fat in the American diet. Um, but also loaded with sodium. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so you're now going to um, pass along this, this, this free, you know, crappy food to people who probably, you know, can't afford to get good quality healthcare and um, basically just make them sicker. And it's like, why can't you just promote, like, like, why can't you just make excessive, like, blueberries or something, you know, (laughs) that we could freeze and ship around to places or something that's going to, like, do something good for our body Um, or kale or even mushrooms, you know, like chanterelle mushrooms. There's an abundance of mushrooms. So everybody gets free mushrooms. Um, But no, it's, it's dairy. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you know, you could go down a real deep tunnel with this thing. And I mean, even when you look at the African-American community, specifically in their history with slave food and the idea that they came to this country eating a lot of whole foods, you know, like the okras and the rices and the grains and traditional African food that was rooted in, in, in yams from the ground and really whole foods and being and coming over here now and having to have the rations of certain parts of the animal and all this and it created a culture of soul food that now I feel like we're in a position now where we're not in an oppressive state so we have to kind of redefine that soul food now because the rations that we made into a delicacy I think it's great because it shows our resilience but I think now that we're living where those same rations now are causing heart disease and causing high blood pressure. We have to now go back to our roots and say, what were some of those foods that we we, we, we originally came with? You know, those, those, you have places in Africa where they do studies um, and they look at the populations of African-Americans that have heart disease. And then you go to certain places in Africa that have zero 
zero cases. And when they look at it, they're looking at their diet. And so it's not a race thing. It's very clear that it's what we're eating in this particular culture. And a point you made a bit earlier that I found very interesting um, that I wanted to add on was the idea of how like being sick is so expensive. And I feel like they make it so that like we have, we don't have access. So we have food deserts, right? So we don't have access to healthy food. So we're sick. And now we have to pay more because now we have all these bills coming in and now we're poor. And now it just continues the cycle of just poverty. We're unhealthy and nobody just gets out because it's so hard to get out because that's how they made it. That's literally how they made it. And Emily's use of the word conspiracy, it's like, it just feels that way because the more you learn about things, the more you're like, things are not as they seem and they don't want you to know that they're not as they seem. So it does fit into the definition of a conspiracy. But, you know, of course, there's always like the whole, like all those other conspiracies. Um, but it's true. Like it is at the end of the day, just like a big old cover up. And yeah, they'll tell you like, oh yeah, it's your fault. You know, you're the one that's making these choices, but it's also like taking into account all the ways in which they set things up against us. Literally the food health guide, the guide that they give out to children. And, you know, as immigrant parents, I think about like my parents were young and were immigrants coming into this country and they were being told, if you don't feed your kids this, you are neglecting them. I'm going to get milk all the time. You know, like when my parents don't even, my parents didn't even drink milk before they came here. But now you come here and you're like, if your kids aren't drinking milk three times a day, you're neglecting them they don't have a choice but to follow, you know? So I just find it so interesting how they just use that power to just put us in that loop. Yeah, and, and this goes back to Cersei's point about, you know, the, the Black community revolting against these guidelines. Because if you think about where milk comes from, and when I say milk, I'm not just talking about the fluid milk you pour in a bowl of cereal. I'm talking about the stuff that gets made from that milk as well, cheese, yogurt, creams, butters, all of it, all of it. It comes from, it's basically mammary fluid from a cow. So what happens is a female cow gives birth to a baby cow, a calf. And then that fluid, which is a natural, you know, it happens in humans. It happens, you know, in pretty much every animal species, mammal species, it, that, that fluid is supposed to be food for that newborn calf, not for a human. That's another species. So if you just think through where it comes from and the fact that you're like, oh, but I love my cheese pizza. Well, yeah, you're addicted to it. Yeah, there, 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 there are hormones and things in that fluid, that mammary fluid that can get you hooked on it, right? And so, but if you stop and think about it, then you start to, you can ask yourself, do I want to really be eating this? Is this really something I want to consume and put in my body? The mammary fluid of a bovine animal that was designed for a baby calf, regardless of whether it's melted on a pizza or spread on a piece of toast or granola sprinkled on top of it for a yogurt parfait or in a bowl of cereal. And so it, it becomes more of a conscious choice that, yeah, I wanna eat that. Yeah, so a bit earlier, like I'm pulling way back, um, we talked a bit about how 
as young people, we have a tendency to focus on aesthetics, um, especially because like we're not really old enough to see the ramifications of like the health risks yet, you know. So people focus more on aesthetics um, than health. And I guess I wanted to kind of see you guys' opinions on that, see um, you guys' like experiences with that as people who have kind of gone through um, all of the phases. So letting us know what you guys think about that. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's kind of looking at it like you do with every aspect of your life. Because what I've noticed with the young people today, especially even in the Black community, there's a lot, we have a lot more um, intel and a lot more youth are investing. They're investing in their financial future. They're saving their money. They're realizing that they can't just spend like they're losing their minds at 20 if they want to build wealth. And I think that's a message that I think people can resonate. And so I figure that same message of building wealth that you have to start when you're young, you could you could splurge all you want, but you know that you're 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 building a house that's going to fall by the time you hit retirement. And I think people get that. A lot of young people are now investing and saving, but it's the same thing when it comes to your health, you're investing, you have to see your health as an investment as you do with money, that what you're doing as you're young, even though you don't see, you're not going to be in retirement today, you're not going to see when you're done with your job, you're not going to see it right now. But what you're doing as a youth is investing, you're investing. So what I'm doing in my 20s is an investment to my health that when I hit 60, I could reap the benefit just like I could reap the benefit from my financial cash, I could reap the benefit from my health cash as well and live a life that's more healthy. And then as as well, I mean, as, as a young person, I feel like if you're someone who's a spiritual person or you're a person of faith, that that's ageless. We identify with our faith and our beliefs from the time we're kids. And if you connect with that, seeing your health from that lens of in the sense that I'm being a steward of the vessel that I've been given, that could start at any age. That could be at five, that could be at 15, that can be at 20. If you get convicted that I've been given this vessel by God to use it in the best way, then the same way we don't put drugs in our body, the same way we've believed the hype, but don't put drugs in your body, the same way we believe the hype of certain other things that we don't damage our body, we need to fold that, that same concept into our health. Yeah, and I'll just add that, um, you know, the thing that we focus on with what we do and the people that we serve is really creating that God-centered self-image. And that's where this faith piece comes into play. And, um, and for someone who is faith-based and spiritual, you know, really looking at, you know, how you view yourself in your body and your temple, as Cersei talked about, um, it, it really sets the foundation for the things that follow in terms of choices. Yeah, I think that especially in a society where, you know, we're in like the mid of like the social media era, you know, where beauty is currency. So like it's normal that everybody is not only aware of their looks, but hyper aware of what they look like and how their appearance, you know, like benefits them or you know doesn't benefit them in everyday social interactions. So I think that like our obsession um, for looking a particular way, no matter what type of, because like the, the desired look you have can vary based on like the type of spot, um, spaces you frequent, but the kind of the notion that like 
people are trying to modify their bodies and typically, or not typically, but a lot of the times in unhealthy ways um, to try to obtain some type of like, to gain um, some type of social capital um, from that. Um, whilst understandable um, is also really dangerous. Um, and as um, Sersi and Gigi have been saying, the focus should really just be on health um, and investing in your health, accepting or loving whatever vessel that health comes, whatever form that health comes in, you know? So whatever health, as long as you're healthy, whatever body you're in that is bringing you health is a good body and is a body that you should learn to love and accept um, and want to be in, you know? So if you're eating well um, and you're feeling well, you're feeling happy, rejuvenated, and you found an exercise that you love, you found a way to move your body in a way that makes you happy, um, then that's really all that matters. Because a quote that I saw once, exercise isn't a punishment, it's a reward. Um, and that really like flipped it for me. Because if you are an able-bodied person or even like somewhat mobile, you know, you can do something like you can get up, you can decide to get up and go for a walk. You can decide to get up and go for a bike ride. You can go to a dance class. You can do all of these things. And while I'm not like a fan of using other people's misfortunes as like a, that, oh, like, oh, I'm so grateful for my life. But like, I think that that quote really kind of puts things into perspective you know like exercise has been play kind of created as this thing that we feel forced to do so like the so it's like you need to do I don't know what the recommended hours are in a week but it's like the government says a healthy adult needs to exercise x amount of hours a week you know or oh I need to go to the gym but like exercise it should kind of be like a not a hobby but more so like a passion or a thing that like you don't need to make time for, but you want to make time for because it's fun. So it's like, you don't need to go and spend time with your friends, but you want to because it's a fun time and you like spending time with your friends. And so I think that like the goal should be to kind of cultivate the same kind of relationship with food and exercise where it's not a thing of diet um, as I guess you guys are promoting with um, your organization and all of your work. Um, health is not like a short-term thing. It's not a diet. Um, it's a lifestyle that we should all be working on to achieve bit by bit um, every day. And it's a bit difficult when you're coming from a place of like, you know, um, as a, like you eat out all the time and you don't really know exactly like a place of maybe shame, um, self-loathing, uh, because it can be a bit, I guess, difficult to unlearn those patterns, um, especially if you're really deep in them. Um, but I guess the goal is to just like progress a little bit every day. Um, and even if you regress, that's normal. But um, but the goal is, to, I guess, just to keep moving forward. Yeah, I just want to say that um, we're we are genetically kind of hardwired to do the least amount of work, you know, just because in times of scarcity, when food was scarce, we had to conserve our energy. And so there's a little bit of that at play. But then, too. Um, what you brought up is really this, this nuance around intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. So like when you're, when you're competing with someone to get the most number of steps in a day over the course of a week, that's kind of like an extrinsic motivator. It's externally kind of happening to you. Whereas if you 
find something you absolutely love to do and you just can't wait to jump out of bed the next morning and go do it. That's more of an intrinsic motivator. And a lot of times as a, um, you know, as a, as a personal trainer, I, um, it starts with extrinsic motivation just to get it going. But then really the true goal is to find something that someone loves to do and help them move in that direction of actually making it more of their lifestyle. I mean, for me, it's cycling. Um, and so really, you know, trying to find whatever that is, whether it's golfing or, um, you know, skiing or, you know, running or whatever that activity is that gets them moving um, and that they love to do and they jump out of bed, they go on trips to go do it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's really, you know, hitting the jackpot. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, yeah, I think I, I, I so agree with that, but I think, you know, it's changing your mindset. Cause I agree with you, Emily, getting healthy has been given a bad rap. Like it almost seems like you're enlisting in the, in, in some war or something or some, you know, some bad thing and it's gotten a bad rap. And so, part of it is like you said, is working on your mindset to start believing that getting healthy is a gift. Getting healthy is the gift you give to yourself. It's not a burden. It's not something to despise. It's not, you know, and I think because of this given such a bad rap, getting healthy, we cringe, right? We're like, oh no, it's sacrifice time. It's depriving time, but really it's giving yourself love time. It's giving yourself the gift. It's elevating yourself. It's getting yourself more in alignment with your values, with everything. And so if you look at it more as that, then you don't cringe. And it, 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 we've got it flipped. We should be cringing for the other stuff, but we cringe for the thing that's actually to elevate us. So it, it's learning a different mindset. Yeah, no, I think that that's like a very interesting point um, just to kind of wrap it up. I think that for some reason, um, like not unhealthiness, but like it's uh, what's the word? It's relatable, you know? Like I think people like to see themselves mirrored and so this whole thing of like whenever like there'll be fashion models and they'll be eating like a pizza or they'll be eating burgers and then people are like oh my god she's just like me you know and so like the notion of kind of like someone can look the way that person looks and eat the way I eat makes me feel better about eating the way that I eat, you know, we want to see ourselves mirrored but when someone comes out and is like yeah I eat this like healthy food and yeah I work out every day people are kind of like ew um as you were saying it's kind of seen as like cringy or people don't um as Gigi was kind of saying like we're not predisposed like we're our brain is not hardwired to want to do hard work so it's like when we hear stuff like that we're kind of deterred a little bit um from the hard work that that person might be putting in um but I think the key is kind of to just like as you were saying to rewire um our mindsets and to realize that it's not necessarily like it, it shouldn't be, it's not a chore, um, but it's more so, um, you know, a benefit actually that we're doing for our bodies. Okay, guys, thank you for listening to yet another episode of Black Girls Talk. We're so grateful to have Cersei and Gigi who came here today to talk to us about health and breaking generational curses by putting in that work to um, ensure that you have a good, healthy life. As always, our social media is in the description and we will see you guys next time. Bye.